This year, um, we're going to focus on songwriting, how that even happens, and then uh, collaborations. Because I think, it, I think people like to hear stories with other names they recognize, and oh, that guy worked with this guy that I also like. So we're going to dive into some of that. Everyone's been introduced. First and foremost, there's a couple of guys on here who wrote songs that got really big back in the day. Gary Corbett, if you don't know, was a co-writer for Cyndi Lauper's song, Shebop. Wow. The ode to female masturbation that we all know and love. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm gonna start, <laughs> so I'm gonna start with Gary. First of all, Gary, tell us how that song, why you of all people wrote the anthem for female masturbation. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I want to know what the effects of that hit were. I mean, it was a big song back in the day. Well, first of all, I can't take credit for the lyrics or the okay. overall <laughs> meaning of the song. I wrote You the aren't music. an expert on female masturbation? No, no. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> what happened was, the guy I wrote it with, a guy named Steve Lunt, um, we wrote the music, and we wrote about three, three or four songs together, and Cindy was going to be coming over to sing the song demos for us. We always attached the title to the song we were writing just to be able to keep track of it, and um, Steve had this notebook full of titles, and that was one of them, and he was English, and he explained to me that that was a... Term, a slang term for masturbation. I said, perfect, mm -hmm. you know, and we named it. And when Cindy came over to sing the other songs that we actually finished, that one was just done in the music and we, we didn't really know what we were gonna do with it. Sure. And she came over to sing the other songs and had just signed her solo deal with Sony and heard the music and said, hey, I really like that. What are you gonna do with it? And so we don't know. She said, I'll, I'd like to write the lyrics. And she said, what's it called? And we told her. And she says, I can get behind that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm OK and, with that. And she, she really wrote the lyrics with, with Steve. Okay. A little Steve, Steve helped, but Cindy okay. actually wrote the lyrics. You know, it's something I, I think that I lose sight of sometimes, and maybe you do too, is that we, th we hear the name Cindy Lauper, and we know that's a big name, and that was a big album, and everything worked out well. But at the time, she was a nobody relative nobody yeah well she had she was in a band called blue angel which was a local. had one record on polygram and i was a huge fan i used to go see her in the clubs around new york all the time because she was just a great singer yeah and uh i was a fan and when steve and i started writing together they shared the same manager and blue angel had just broken up and she was shopping a solo deal and I was just thrilled that she was willing to sing our demos, you know? Yeah. She was a great singer, I, I was a fan, and I was just happy to have that. And so, and even when she got the deal, you know, Blue Angel only sold 20,000 records, and so, you know, she took it, and I went, wow, if I could sell 20,000 records, that'd be yeah. awesome, you know? Yeah, but, um, good. Okay, I wanna know the effects of that hit in a minute, but let's in involve everyone else. Paul Taylor from Winger, um, now, Yes. <laughs> Miles Away on the second album is you, correct? Mm -hmm. This song is not only a hit, but it becomes sort of attached to uh, Gulf War, I don't know, sentimentalism or something maybe at the time? Uh, My is this working? Okay. <laughs> anyway, 
you write this big hit, how did this happen? And when that song takes on a life of its own, is it like putting a child out in the world that maybe they go to college, maybe they don't, maybe they turn into something, maybe they don't? How do you feel as you've set this thing out? Well, you know, I, I certainly hadn't planned on it being a big hit. I, I actually, a lot of songs that I write, um, I just write them and I come up with any old words. That one was actually a particular, there was a story behind it and I had been dating uh, Amy Cannon who ended up, you know, singing backgrounds with Motley Crue and uh, unfortunately last year passed away. But uh, we had been dating for about three years and then I ended up taking a gig on the road with Eric Martin and moving up to San Francisco and she just, the, the distance kind of did us in and so I wrote it kind of about that uh, and, and later I was able to say to her, hey, thanks for buying me a house, but because uh, she decided she just couldn't hang and, and wait for me anymore. So that's what I wrote the song about. And it was just, uh, honestly, that song might not have ever seen the day had I not been lucky enough to be playing with Eric Martin at the time. And I had Eric sing the demo of it because my demo is terrible. I think I'm going to release it actually this year. I'm going to put it out there because it, it's the recording's absolutely horrible because I'd never really recorded anything before. But Eric's vocal was so amazing on it that everybody that heard it was like, oh my God, that's a hit. And it was really just because Eric sang so cool, you know. But uh, so when Kip heard it, he's like, oh my God, dude, we need to put that on the record. So that's how I got on there. And uh, then uh, Doug Morris at Atlantic just kind of fell in love with it because um, there was another amazing ballad on the record under one condition that Kip wrote. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, Miles Away is added, or that song's yeah. good. But Doug Morris liked Miles Away because it was much more commercial. So right. I, I just lucked out, and, and uh, you know. You never know how these things are going to work you out. You never know. Uh, probably the fact that I wasn't planning on it doing anything is, you know, because whenever you, your best laid plans never work in the music yeah. business. <laughs> it's always the weirdest, unexpected thing. Right, so. right. Well, Steve, as a fellow member of the R-E-A-U-X at the end of our last name, Brotherhood, by the way, <laughs> John Lamoureux, Steve Chirot, Um Kick Tracy coming out of the Sunset Strip scene, which, I mean, we all know, look at all these people here. It's one of the most electrifying, you know, scenes in modern rock history. How are, how are the bands you're seeing and hearing and that are exploding, influencing what you're doing in that first Kick Tracy album. Wow, I, I, I mean. Is there a competitive streak going on? Or are you feeling like, I'm as good as these guys, I can do that? For sure, for sure. I, I mean, we, Kick Tracy kind of had a philosophy of their own. We were, we were a valley band and, <laughs> and we were like, we're just gonna go in there, kick ass and and go out. We never really hung around for a lot of the, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of crazy, like, you know, we, I was so serious at the time, you know, I was like, I, I was on a mission and I knew what I wanted to do. And, and luckily they were like, you know, willing to follow along with the, the plan. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sense of competition there. You know, that, that sunset strip scene, I, we, I was just talking to the guy on the podcast, it was such a magical, just time warp that I don't know if will ever will happen again. It's, it's, uh, I'm happy and grateful to have been part of it. You know, yeah. really, it was incredible yeah. to walk along this sea of flyers and, you know, on, on the strip and people and, and just music fans appreciating what was going on there. It's, it's right. incredible. Are you finding in a that's so big, are you influencing each other or are you drawing upon 
Chip Trick, the Sweet, that. What are you, what's influencing what you're doing? I mean, we were definitely, I think, picking up on each other's vibes and, and, and being influenced by one another. But at the same time, like I said, we're like, we're going to carve out our own niche and do our own thing here. And I think that in, in, in the end is kind of why we stuck out and maybe okay. got, you know, where we, where we got to, hopefully. But, cool. you know. Now, I want to know, you guys especially, what did you do? Now, I think you mentioned, Paul, you just you bought a house from miles away. How did you celebrate your success? Uh -huh. Tell me. Oh, you know, Can you? Is it appropriate for I, this room? Well, yeah, fortunately in my life, I spent most of my money in restaurants and not on you know, drugs. But uh, that, that's my downfall, is like eating in good restaurants. There you uh, go. So, uh, you know, I just upped that. And, okay. you know, and my accountant at the point, you know, I'd turn my thing in and it would say entertainment and it would be just, he's like, are you serious? Like, where could you possibly spend? Uh-huh. Yeah, this is what I love to do, you know? So the, your first giant royalty check comes to the house and you're like, now I can go to that restaurant that I've always wanted to go to. Oh, and I, I ate can out some everywhere, friends. all over L.A. It was great. See, that's what, I love hearing that because <laughs> we don't, you know, we think it goes to, I don't know what, but that's, you know, get to feed some kind of an interest. What about you, Gary? Well, the very first check went to gear. I bought I gear. Bought gear. Okay. <laughs> I bought a DX7. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. Cool. <laughs> and a Porter Studio. Okay. Yeah. Now, did the, you know, not to get too specific about it, but eventually, I'm guessing those ch checks slowed way down. <laughs> yes. I mean, for a while there, it's a hit. For a while there, people are still buying greatest hit CDs. For a while there, radio matters. Um, how does your life change when that mailbox money, that well of, you know, funds starts to dry up? <laughs> ramen to lobster to ramen. You what? Ramen to lobster back yeah. to ramen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Suddenly Denny's is the restaurant of choice once Sorry, again. Sorry, Gary. I yeah. didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. Yeah, the anyway. one thing for me that, uh, you know, uh, and thanks to uh, Ron Keel's guitar player, Mark Ferrari, uh, 22 years ago, I ran into him somewhere and we started talking and he's like, yeah, I'm trying to get my songs in TV. And I was like, man, I was thinking about that lately too. So we started writing and, and uh, long story short, he, he, he had the business mind and we wrote a few things and he started getting them instantly in TV. And that's something I've continued to do over the years. I have about 250 songs out. And, you know, and none of them by themselves make a heck of a lot of money, but it's, it's the quantity thing. So now, like, when Universal calls me and has me write them, I know that it's, you know, they pay me up front a little bit for them, but yeah. it, it's just adding to the pot, you know, because it's great. the sheer quantity of songs that I have out there that keeps the mailbox money. Because, like, you know, Miles Away or any of those songs, it's like, yeah. you know, yeah. th those aren't bringing in a heck of a lot anymore. Yeah. You know? Uh, that's why I called my podcast The Hustle, because artists have to hustle to pivot, find new ways of changing oh, yeah. it up and doing different things, especially in this day and age. Um, now, I mentioned you guys, I gave these guys kind of a heads up. First of all, somebody may want to wave at me when I'm running out of time. And since I'm facing this way, if somebody over here wants to be like, you're, you know, five minutes. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. Anyway. Um, I'm really curious to know how guys, how creative people deal with criticism. 
especially in the hard rock and heavy metal genre, which we all know has been largely marginalized from you know, the Rolling Stone magazines and stuff like that. They don't pay as much attention to this. They kind of minimize it. A guy like you, Steve, from a band like Kick Tracy that comes out at a time that's so hot, but teaming with these bands that are being marginalized, except Guns N' Roses, which you're often compared to, how do you deal with that as a creative person? Do you care? Does it, uh, do you want to overcome it? What do you think? Yeah, I don't deal with it well. Really? No. <laughs> um, I, I didn't even know there was any criticism, was there ever? Uh, any? No, whether Somebody somewhere, maybe. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I'm hearing of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, you know, I, I, to be honest, I don't really care. Really? Okay. <laughs> I, because I like what I do, and that's all that really matters. Good. And if I like what I do, it's going to tr transcend to, you know, the people that like what I do. And Good. And I don't need everybody to like what I do. So. Good. <laughs> and nor will everyone like what yeah. I do. So. That's really healthy. A guy like you, Paul, I think individually, every individual member of Winger was always highly respected for their musicianship. Mm -hmm. But Winger as a band never quite got the respect they deserved, probably because Kip was so beautiful that it just got, <laughs> you know, knocked down. How do you deal with that? Well, I think we deserved it. After I watched some of the old videos, I'm like, wow, we deserved it. No, I, you know, uh, you, you always regret stuff you did earlier and you go, God, why were we wearing that? And why did my hair look like a palm tree? You know? yeah. But, uh, you know, if you're in the music business, you just have to, criticism comes along with it, like, and especially, you know, more than a band thing, because you can kind of take it all together, I, I would take, you know, the songwriting things harder, you know, but, but I've learned, like, when I write a new song, I could write the one that I think is the best song in the world, and I could play it for five of my friends that are my best critics, and three of them will love it, and two of them will go, I don't get it, man. Wow. You know, so that's just the nature. Everybody likes something different. And, mm -hmm. you know, some of my friends that I'm pretty sure are going to like my new song, I'll go, Kenny, listen to this one. He's like, nah. Yeah. So it just, you know, you got you to get used to people not liking what you do very early on and, okay. and knowing that there's always going to be some other ones out there that will like it. So. Right. Okay. And Gary, somebody like you, you've always been really interesting to me because in the early 80s, you start out with this band, Tom Dickey as like a new waver, you know, skinny tie, <laughs> short hair guy. I want to see Which that. looks nothing like the dude you're looking at right now. You write for Cyndi Lauper. That first album is performed by the Hooters, largely. And yet you become this and sort of find yourself this. Well, you know, this rock god. And I'm curious if somewhere along the way, and this is a question for all three of you, I'm always interested in people who have sort of hitch their wagon to a particular genre. Is that where their primary interests lie? Is that what was working out at the time? And so I backed this horse instead of, if New Wave, if Tom Dickey had gotten huge, I would have been a skinny tie New Waver for the rest of my life. <laughs> how does it, you know, how do you decide, how do you find yourself in music? I, I, that's a, a tough question. I mean, I, I've always liked everything. Yeah. And I find the good in every genre, you know, and if, if I end up working with an artist in a particular genre, that's what I eat, sleep, and live until I at least absorb it enough to really understand it from a yeah. musical point. And, you know, but 
you know, fashion is fashion. I mean, I, I, you know, I was an 18-year-old kid in New York City hanging out at CBGB's and Max's and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, skinny ties were what you wore. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What about you, Paul? I wore them, too, but it was, I was in a club. I was in a top 40 band. I was a kid, and we really? used to play in the Embarcadero Center in San Francisco, and you know, playing, you know, I got your number written on the back of my hand, you know, uh -huh. all the, the Jags and all those songs. You know, it, it, was, it was what was happening at the time, you know, and you, yeah. just, uh, you, just, you just roll with it. And Do you think you would have been equally as happy if you had ended up in uh, Mr. Mister or some other? Oh, you heck know what I mean? yeah. I mean, yes. they were successful, of course, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking That's of a band that did something, you know, fine. pop poppier stuff. Would you have been equally as happy playing keyboards with a? Oh yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm one of those guys too. That I just, I love a lot of everything. Yeah. You know, like I just went and saw Toto. I saw you out there with a Toto shirt the other day. They were unbelievable. I mean, the musicianship yeah. is scary with that band, yeah. and you know, and some of their songs are corny and all that. But you just look past that, and I mean, they were, you know, and Luke Thor, of course, like always, sure. his guitar playing is scary good. So. Yeah. Uh, okay. But yeah, I, you know, I like anything from really hard rock and metal to pop this is stuff. just how it worked out. Yeah. Steve, what about you? Was it always hard rock? Kiss, baby. Kiss, really? <laughs> that was the influence. What started it all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm still Why? What specifically? You have a sea of Kiss fans here. Let's nerd out yeah, for a no, second. I was what about was to it about jump Kiss? off stage and give that guy a hug. <laughs> um, yeah, I, that band just seemed otherworldly. I didn't even know that they were real. It was, yeah. you know, the comic books, the uh, just the, the mystery around them, the makeup, uh, you yeah. know, all of it. It, it. I was just drawn in. I joined the army. I was a soldier. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, okay. The rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, I saw the first concert in 78, something like that. And yeah. Kiss Judas Priest. Halford comes rolling out on the on the the Harley, you know, for the uh, British Steel tour. And I don't even, I mean, I knew who they were, but, you know, it's just rock. So when you saw and heard Kiss, you thought, I want that. Yes. That's what I'm going Without for. Without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that I, as I mentioned earlier, that I think is really interesting is talking about collaborations. And um, you've all worked with some really interesting people. Paul, I want to go to you specifically because you worked a ton with Steve Perry, or at least have a lot of co-writing credits on that For the Love of Strange Medicine album. He's everywhere in the news today because he's going to put out his first solo album since that one. How did you become involved with working with Steve Perry? Uh, that was actually a really crazy story. I, uh, I had a friend, Cindy Poon, that works for Fan Asylum in San Francisco, and she had come to Los Angeles, and my buddy was putting on an art show that night, so I took her to that, and we were, you know, we were just there hanging, and finally I was like, hey, by the way, what's Steve Perry been doing? And she's like, well, funny you should ask. He's kind of been talking about possibly putting something together, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> Cindy, let him, you know, keep keyboards, guitar, I can sing, I write, I'm kind of like Jonathan Cain, you know, and I was just half kidding, you know. So literally the next morning at 6.30 in the morning, I get a call. It's like, hey, Steve Perry. And I'm like, I'm looking at the clock going. This, he goes, These are not rock hours. Oh I'm a rock God. star for a reason. I don't want to and get up like, at 6.30. He's like, hey, what are you doing right now? And I'm like, he goes, oh, did I wake you up? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah. But he's like, well, hey, she said, you know, we should get together. And I'd like to hear some of your stuff. Can I come over? And I, 
I go, I live in L.A. because I knew he had a place in, in San Francisco. But he came, he literally is at my house at 7.15 in the morning. And I was, I was just renting a room at the time because I hadn't got my house yet. So I was staying with some friends. So they're all waking up. And here I'm standing in the kitchen at 7 o'clock in the morning. With Steve, and they're all like, what the fuck? You know, and I'm like, you know. So anyway, that's what started it. And we, uh, I played him some stuff. And we just sat there all day. And he was singing stuff. And it was about four months later he finally called and said, hey, you know, don't learn any Journey stuff. Show up at Third Encore. And so I got there. And it was... Uh, me and this little 18-year-old kid, Lincoln Brewster, who's just an amazing guitar player, and now he's a huge Christian artist. And you know, we just slowly jammed over the year and ended up doing the record. And or, you know, it, it was a long, drawn-out process, but a lot of fun. Really? Are you? Uh, do you still keep in touch with Steve at all? Every once in a while, we we did. You know, over the years, Christmas it's just less and less. I, you know, I had talked to him a couple years ago, and I knew he was putting something together, but. Um, you know, it's great that he's got a, a yeah. song out now, and I haven't heard the other tracks, but, yeah. uh, you know, he's, just, he's just got such an iconic voice, you know. Totally. The best. Uh, Steve, back to you for a minute. Dana Strum produces that uh, Kick Tracy album. He's coming off of Slaughter and, I'll be the first to say it, Vinnie Vincent. Um, is that, are you as a young band working on your first album, are you sort of thinking, I've got this great guy who's really hot right now working on my album? What are you thinking when that guy comes along and wants to produce you? Uh, I was thinking that we had a, 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 a grand champion that, yeah. that was just really 100% believed in what we were doing. And no matter what he had done previously or before or wherever, he was just in all in for us. And that's what mattered. And it showed, <laughs> and the result speaks for itself. You know, he he was just a a, a beautiful team player. A young band like yours coming up, first album has to have some kind of champion with a loud voice that's yes. willing to go to bat for you and believe in what you're doing. He took, he took us under his wing, and he just you know learned a lot from Dana, and he it, it was an invaluable experience. Good. It was fantastic. Uh, now, Gary, you've worked with everybody in all different genres. Uh, tell us a little bit how you got hooked up with the Marleys. You've worked with several of Bob Marley's offspring. <laughs> tell us how you got involved with that. Well, I was living down in Miami Beach, and um, pretty early on, when I first moved down there, I had met this Rastafarian. Gotta make your connections when you get to a new town. And he uh, was a guitar player, and he had connections to the Marley house, and he was an engineer that worked in their studio. And there's a huge uh, festival every year down in Miami, the Bar Marley Festival. It's an all-day reggae festival, and it's great. And the first year that I was living there, I ended up playing at the festival with, with this guy and just met a bunch of people through that. And one thing led to another, and uh, then I met Stephen Marley, who was the producer of All the Sons. Okay. So once I met him, he hired me to play on basically on, on everybody, everybody's record, from uh, Ziggy, Damien, Julian, Kimani. I even worked with uh, Bob's mom before really? she passed away. Yeah, she, she did children's gospel records. No way. And she was awesome. What a cool wow. lady. Who knew? Yeah. Uh, now, quick question for you, Gary. Who has the best weed? The Marleys or the hard rock and heavy metal industry? The Marleys? Hands down, the Marleys. The Marleys. So, 
That'd be a lesson to everybody. If you want to get the best weed, you got to work with the Marlies. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have five minutes left. Each of you take one to two minutes. I want to know what your favorite, tastiest memory is over the course of your whole career. When you look back and you think, I can't believe this thing happened to me, what is that thing? And we'll go down this way. Steve, start with you. Well, I, I mean, I, gotta, I, gotta, I guess I got to go to the uh, moment that I walked in the room and started throwing down with the Motley Crue guys and had an opportunity to be, you know, you were talking about Steve Perry calling you at 6.30 in the morning, and um, I got that call from Nikki at about 11.30 in the morning. I was trying to figure out if I was dreaming or not at first, but, yeah, you know, to throw down with those guys and uh, just to be considered and... Um, it was cool for a Midwest kid who was covering those songs and doing three sets a night and lucky to squeeze an original in here and there, you know, we, you know the drill. I was covering all that stuff and then to be standing there in the room throwing down live wire, it was like, all right, this is, <laughs> this is awesome. good. So Very cool. A pinch Paul, yourself, pinch myself moment. No kidding. Paul, tell us. Oh, God. I, you know, there's been probably uh, one of the big ones for me was, and, and not that I was totally into his music but uh, my years with Alice Cooper um, Alice was just I, when I was a kid actually when I was playing with Eric Martin we were rehearsing as kids down in LA at SAR Studios and I remember seeing a white Rolls Royce roll in the gates and Alice got out and we were like oh my god it's Alice Cooper and we were all like because he was that spooky you know but and then years later to just you know be playing in his band and he, he's such a sweetheart of a guy and you know and of course such a legend you know uh, yeah. You know, so did you ever play golf with him? I didn't. I'm not a golfer, but all the guys that ever did, like our crew guys, would come back and go, "Oh my God, he can hit the ball." I mean, because he's so small, you know. It's just, or even just try to keep up with him walking through a mall. I mean, he walks like 50 miles an hour. Like, I don't know where he gets his energy, but That's yeah, he, he's amazing. Good, Gary, tastiest memory wow. that you can remember. Or that I could say on stage. <laughs> that too. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I, I keep going back and forth between two. If you're talking like musically, uh, in 87, I got to play with Lou Graham on his solo tour. Nice. When he did Midnight Blue and all that stuff. But playing with him, uh, doing Jukebox Hero every night, when he used to hit those notes at the end... I used to literally get goosebumps and the hair would stand up every night that we played. Oh. And, it was, and that was a person who I had definitely dreamed of playing with when I was growing up. So Lose the best. It was awesome. Well, guys, again, the thing I, th I think is most fascinating when you're just looking at people like this, just imagine the memories that are rolling around in these guys' heads, the people they've talked to, the groupies they've seen, the people they've Team. written music That's with, important. the things they've done in their lives. Just imagine what the collective memories rolling around in these three dudes' heads is right now. Anyway, we love you, and thank you for doing this with us. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks.